Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 218 Liberating the Soul of Organization. We're joined this week by Brian Robertson, founder of Holacracy One, a company whose aim is to liberate the soul of organization. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn. And I'm thrilled today to be joined by special guest Brian Robertson. Brian's the partner of Holacracy One, which is an organization whose purpose is to liberate the soul of organization. Obviously, as Buddhists, we don't talk a lot about soul, but this is something we want to explore with you, Brian. It's great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vince, for having me. Yeah, and so before we jump into what it means to liberate the soul of an organization, because that's such a provocative purpose to have. Obviously, Buddhist geeks, a lot of what we tend to focus on is things around practice, around Buddhist culture. And in this conversation, we're going to focus more around business culture and around organizational practices. But first, I thought it'd be helpful just so people can kind of connect to you in their own common language as Buddhists. If you could say a little bit about your background as a contemplative practitioner and a lover of spiritual wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely love that question. Um, for me, my path, my spiritual path, if you will, was through most of my uh, early life and childhood, the way I was raised all the way into adulthood as I kind of started doing my own thing and finding my own way in the world. My path was devoutly atheist. <laughs> and I, I do mean devoutly atheist. I, I was brought up in the kind of scientific, rational, materialism kind of worldview uh, without really any focus on that. And through so many years of my life, I clung to that uh, more and more, even in the face of experiences that really didn't fit with that worldview, that background. Uh, so for me, it was it was through running organizations and searching for better ways of even understanding what this is and who am I in this organization Eventually, this, this atheist worldview, this kind of reductionist worldview I had, just didn't stand up to the experiences of being in the world, in organization. Um, as I entered, and we'll talk more about this, different practices, I love that word, practices in organization that tended to hold up a mirror to what was going on for us and, and tended to put us into more of a witnessing state naturally, day to day in our organizational life. I found my worldview crumbling and collapsing, and it was about that time in my life that I started finding some of the wisdom that's out there that had been all around me and I just missed all my life. Uh, I got into integral theory, found some of that, got uh, hooks into all different spiritual traditions that I just devoured everything I could find at that point uh, to try to make sense out of my world after this this crumbling. I think the fascinating thing now when people ask me, well, what's your practice on the other side of that transition of that kind of just waking up process for me, my spiritual practice, if you will, is organization. Uh, and it is a practice in organization that we do every day that I think has some of the same effects as a meditation practice does. It's a continual practice of noticing what's arising, making subject, object, taking a different stance or relationship to experience to what's coming up. 
all embedded in the way we show up at work every day, every hour of our lives, uh, the way we make decisions, the way we meet everything. So for me, my spiritual practice is work, is life, is is that. Mm, and and work for sure for most of us is a place we spend a lot of time. So I think yeah, for most for sure. people they couldn't say they're meditating, you know, 40, 50 <laughs> hours a week. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> cool. So yeah. Let, yeah, let's jump right into that. Um because that's for many people they may have a hard time with the notion of practicing at work. So yeah. holacracy, which is a system that you helped co-develop is an organizational practice. And I wondered if you could start by just sort of describing or explaining or trying to uh paint a picture of what holacracy is for us. Yeah. Um, one metaphor we use is an operating system. We don't think about it often, but our organizations today have an operating system that they run on top of. Just like your computer has an operating system underneath of it that controls pretty much everything. It controls how power flows, how decisions get made, how what uh, resources, which application gets. So do our organizations. There's an operating system underneath of them. Today's modern operating system we're all familiar with. It's this top-down conventional power hierarchy status kind of thing that we're used to. What Holacracy is at its core is a new operating system that completely restructures or changes how an organization is run. What it tries to do is build a capacity for presence, for consciousness into the organization itself to get to a true conscious organization capable of sensing whatever is arising in its reality at every moment and responding dynamically in flow to all of that. And to do that is a practice. It's not just a theory or a model or an idea. There is a, a set of intertwined processes and uh, practices in holacracy that, that help the organization sense anything rising in its awareness and respond to it uh, in flow. Uh, and there's more I can say about that whenever we get there, or if there's something more you'd like me to dig into there, I'm happy to. Yeah, yeah, great. I'm thinking maybe the best way to learn more is to maybe start at the beginning. And I was thinking of your story, because I've heard it before from you. Uh, it has parallels to the story of the Buddha in that he was trying all sorts of different things. He was meditating, and then he he was really looking for a better way. You know, uh, He was looking for some deep insight into the way things work, and he wasn't able to find that anywhere else. Uh, and similarly, when I hear you sort of tell your story about organizational life. You had started a company, an agile software company, and you and your colleagues were asking this question that about somehow there has to be a better way of working. Um, maybe if you could start at the beginning and, and share how Holacracy arose. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was it was exactly that. It was starting a company, not for your typical reasons, but because we just had this burning question of there's got to be a better way. What is it? And we had no idea what it was, but we thought, what better way to find it than to start experimenting? Uh, so we created an organization as a laboratory, as an experiment ground to try every possible imaginable new cutting edge idea, thought, theory, practice, whatever – all in a search to find a completely different way to show up in and be in organization around a purpose. And it was through a lot of experimentation that we learned a lot of ways not to do it and over time started developing this new system that uh, pretty radically shifted how an organization is structured, runs, operates. And one of the main metaphors that I like to use that kind of gets at the core of what we were looking for, imagine if we uh, rode a bicycle, like we manage a modern company today, it would look something like this. It would be, you know, we'd have our committee meetings, uh, our really long, painful committee meetings where people sit around and they, they talk about how to best ride the bicycle. They plan, they analyze, they predict everything that could go wrong. And then finally, with plan in hand, you know, we get on the bicycle, we hold the handlebars rigidly at the angle we had calculated, we close our eyes and we pedal. And if 
the bicycle falls over somewhere along the way, then, you know, we get up and uh, we continue resisting reality by saying, all right, well, why didn't this go right? You know, right being the way that we had envisioned up front and planned that it should go. And maybe who's to blame so we can fire them and get them out of the picture. Uh, and we know what to do differently next time. We're going to control this more. We're going to have more analysis, more prediction. And this whole approach uh, is what I call predict and control management, uh, which is fundamentally based on a ground of fighting or resisting reality and trying to impose our projections, our visions, our predictions, and force reality to conform to them. Uh, and for me, one of the core questions underlying all of this work that started me on this path is, how can we run an organization much more like we actually ride a bicycle? When you ride that bicycle, it's a process of staying present in the moment. Steering is not something you do once at the start of the journey. It's something you do every moment in flow based on your eyes open and reality arising in every moment. You are not resisting reality. You are flowing with reality. Uh, and that actually increases your capacity to guide it. That's the fundamental illusion in the predict and control thinking. It gives us this nice, happy, peaceful feeling that everything's in control, but it's really self-delusion. Uh, there's much more illusion of control than real control in that modern way of managing. Uh, a core aspect of holacracy to me is how do we shift from that predict and control paradigm to a sense and respond paradigm, a, a consciousness. And, and it's not enough to have conscious people. We need a conscious organization. We need an organization capable of processing whatever arises in its reality uh, and flowing with it. And mm. that's a really tall order. Mm, for sure. And, you know, a little background just for myself, because I, I wanted to mention that holacracy is something at different points in my own life as a person in an organization, I've had a chance to try to implement. And I would say, one, that these really are practices that you're going to describe, if you can in a moment, sort of share some of the outlines of what the practices are. And then also, two, uh, I wanted to share that it really is challenging to implement some of these things, not because they don't make sense, um, because everything you're saying right now with sense and respond versus predicting control, all that stuff, I think when people hear it, it just feels like, ah, oh, a sense of relief. Like, that would be so much better way of doing things. And yet, somehow it becomes really counterintuitive to do things that way. So, yeah, maybe if we could start with with the actual practices, if you could describe some of what you're talking about. Because I think for people that are used to doing a lot of practice, it's always neat to hear what a practice is like. Yeah, absolutely. So, let me start with one other kind of framing piece to point the way and then use that to get into some examples. Great. So, if we want a sense and respond organization acting with present moment awareness and in conscious flow and response, one of the ways to think about what we need to get there is an organizational capacity to sense what I call tensions and to process them. So when I say the word tension, I simply mean, you know, whenever we have a sense that reality is here and yet reality could be over here, you know, something different and there's a gap between them, right? So we sense current reality, potential reality, there's a gap. That gap creates a, a sense of creative tension. Uh, we might experience it as an opportunity or as a problem to solve, but all that really is human meaning making on top of what is ultimately just an experience of a perception of gap or of tension pulling us towards something next. Uh, so with that, we humans have a, a huge capacity to sense tension. What we need to get an organization in, in true dynamic steering in, in a conscious, uh, awake fashion is an organization which can sense where any tension sensed by any human anywhere in the organization has a place to go to get rapidly and reliably processed into some kind of meaningful change. In contrast, most of the organizations I see out in the world today cannot honestly say that any tension sensed by anyone anywhere in the company has a place to go to get rapidly and reliably processed into meaningful 
change. But that's what we want if we, we want true conscious organization. So what is the practice of holacracy? Holacracy has a framework of intertwined practices that are all about processing tension. Uh, the goal is to give, again, anyone who senses attention something to do with it. So we have different meeting practices, and these are not your typical meetings. <laughs> meetings, uh, the way we're used to them, tend to be painful, frustrating experiences in a lot of companies. Uh, these are done well meetings that people look forward to as the most productive possible use of their time and, and tend to leave energized and excited about. So there's a framework of meeting practices with tangible decision-making systems that are used in that meeting practice uh, that is all about taking attention and processing it into some kind of change. Uh, it's fascinating what happens when you do that compared to what we see today. Today, a typical meeting, you end up with everybody flooding the space with their own stuff, right? It's like you give a, a space and everyone who senses any tension and anything, it just spills into the space. Holacracy is a disciplined practice of structuring meetings, so we're addressing one tension at a time, and we're doing it rapidly, and we're not getting stuck in predictions, in projections, in fear, in anything like that. It stays ruthlessly present. It is focused on, in this moment right now, what tension do we know of that's arising? How do we rapidly process it into something that's next? Leave all our judgments and frustrations and attempts to fight reality or resist reality behind, and focus just on processing that tension. Mm. So there's facilitated meeting practices and, and decision-making processes that embody all sorts of rules to keep that one tension at a time processing focus until we continually repeat that and we've got a space for every tension to be processed. So on top of that, there's an organizational structure we can talk more about that enables it as well, but that's the at least a high-level frame for the, the different practices. Yeah, very cool. And it's interesting, I mean, I'm sure people listening now will get a sense of the language you're using has got such a strong parallel with with so many different meditation practices and I wanted to explore oh, yeah. a little bit of that too as well as looping back around to some of the other principles of holacracy but you know you're talking about being ruthlessly in the present processing yeah. tensions one at a time not getting caught in fear um, <laughs> this yeah. sounds like <laughs> this sounds like an instruction for doing insight meditation or vipassana meditation it sounds like yeah although i will say from my experience practicing both it is very different at the same time it is I, that resonates with me it's both very similar but very different all at once there's an interesting thing that happens when you do this collectively and it's focused on getting work done so you, there's some purpose that's pulling you forward and everything is in service of that so it has uh, many similar capacities, noticing what's arising, uh, facing it ruthlessly in the present uh, without getting stuck in our meaning-making, our, our resistance of reality or anything else. And there's an active quality to it. We're doing this for a purpose, to remove some obstacle or some tension or close some gap towards expressing or manifesting some purpose in the world. And what that takes from each individual is the ability to notice what's arising, right? To witness what's arising and then from there to have a process to put it into. It only does you so much good to have more consciousness individually if you're in a system that doesn't allow you to do something to process what you sense. Uh, and I see this all the time. In fact, some of the most dysfunctional organizations I've encountered have some of the most high capacity and high consciousness individuals within them. It's not uncommon at all for me to see organizations where you've got some, you've got longtime meditators, you've got uh, incredible capacities at play of the individuals, and the organization is a dysfunctional mess. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I think they're correlated. It's often the people with that capacity 
that are aware of all the limits in our modern organizational structures and systems, so they throw them out. And the trouble with throwing them out is what do you replace them with? And if you don't have an organization that can hold it, then all of the high consciousness capacity folks working together in the world don't have a way to integrate around a common purpose and process tensions collectively that can't be processed by one individual alone. Uh, so we end up with chaos or with clashes or what have you. And I actually see that more commonly, it, it's in those higher capacity folks that you get more frustrations for good reasons, because they've thrown out something they know is limiting. Or they've chosen, knowing that throwing it out's not a good answer, to embody it, and then there's just a frustration and a burnout, as you've got people that can sense so much more than they're able to process in reality. One of the, the things I think that's really interesting when you look at holacracy through a, a lens of meditative-like practices there's a decision-making process that we use in what we call governance meetings. It's called integrative decision-making. Even the, the, the different phases, it's a very structured process that are all designed to kind of hold up a mirror to our own meaning-making, our own attachments as they arise in real time. Uh, so even simple rules like when a proposal is made, uh, before somebody's allowed to jump in and react to the proposal, there's a space for questions to clarify the proposal. No reactions of any sort are allowed. And what that does is kind of every time somebody wants to jump in with, with a reaction, which is a natural gut, something rises in us, it grabs us and we want to react and express it. It forces a meditative like awareness of what's arising in me. What is it? I have to sense into it. Is this really a reaction as opposed to an attempt to clarify? Notice it, hold it and let it go or at least let it wait until it's space to get processed. It's just one example. Later in the process, there's a space for uh, what we call objections. They're not, they're not personal objections. There's a space for, do you see any reasons why this proposal is not workable to address just the tension that the proposer brought with the proposal? Uh, and what's really fascinating there, when you give people a space and you ask them if they have any objections and you define an objection like that, naturally, people start raising objections that are really not reasons the proposal's not workable. It's them trying to address a different tension. Somebody might say, yeah, that's not workable. It doesn't account for X. When X really has nothing to do with the proposal, it's a different tension that that person also thinks we should address. And what we do in most meetings is, again, all those come up and then we don't address any tensions because we're trying to address all of them. Uh, so the process holds up rules that say, wait a minute, is that really a reason that this proposal will cause harm? All we're trying to do is address it to the proposer's satisfaction. We're just looking for reasons it's going to cause harm or not work. When you ask that question and you force somebody to notice their own sense of tension in the moment, to sense into that and to tease it apart and figure out, what is this tension I'm sensing? And is it a reason this won't work? Or am I just trying to flood the space with something I think we should address? That also has a meditative-like quality of helping them turn inward, notice what's arising, filter it, sort it out, and then figure out what to do with it. And this recurs again and again and again throughout the process. So there's just this really interesting practice in how we show up and make decisions in these meetings. This is just one type of meetings and there's others. It's the constant holding up a mirror, forcing us to notice our own stuff that has to me a very similar result as meditation. It's making subject object. It's forcing us to turn inward, notice what's arising, make subject object, uh, wrap our hands around it and not just be owned by it or in the grip of it. Anything you wanted to add on the, the connection there and the meditation practice? Well, yeah, you know, I, I, at times I've found myself trying to explain, you know, what holacracy is because it's one of the only conscious organizational systems that I've worked with. And I find, especially in the Buddhist world or in the spiritual world, there's such a need for that. Like you're saying, I can feel the need to be able to alleviate these tensions. They're so present. They're yeah. so 
poignant. They're so painful. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, when I tried to describe what holacracy is to a, a meditation practitioner, one th- analogy I've used before, and maybe you could just comment on this, is that in some way a practice, it's almost something that we that can hold something for us that we can't yet hold for ourselves. <laughs> I love the way you language that. Yeah. That's exactly how, how I describe it too. It's people sometimes mistakenly say, wow, this holacracy thing, doesn't it require individuals that are just almost superheroes in their capacities and their consciousness uh, or capacities for consciousness? And the answer is no. The practice is there to hold it so you don't have to. Uh, the practice is there to have a structure or a process that even when you're at, having a bad day, you know, and you get stuck in all sorts of attachments and you get stuck in all sorts of resistances, the practice can hold it and can pull the organization to a different space and through you pull you to a different space even when you're having an attachment moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's just so critical. The practice is your framework or your structure so that you don't have to heroically hold this capacity alone. And to your point about tensions, when we don't have a way to process tensions, it leads to apathy, burnout, frustrations. It's no wonder we see so much pain in organization today, so much suffering. When we've got all of these tensions coming up and nothing to do with them other than to sit with them and watch them. And that's the irony. You know, you can, you can have a good individual practice that at least lets you, you know, notice that, shift to a different ground, witness it, release it, whatever. But that's not the same as really getting to impact reality by processing it. Uh, and it's so hard. So we've got this pain. And the cool thing is when you have a tension processing mechanism that can inflow, process whatever arises organizationally, it's not that you have no tension. It's not that tension goes away. It actually increases. But they're not two-year-old tensions that you're just sitting on and they're festering because you can't do anything. Uh, and the whole experience of sensing this this frustration, this tension, whatever, changes. Uh, as my wife, who works in, in an organization, our organization running with us, as she often says, tension now kind of excites her. It's like she senses it not as a frustrating bad thing, but as something that is an opportunity to help the organization evolve. Uh, an organism without tension is dead, and one that can't process its tension quickly dies. Uh, it, it's one that, that can continually process whatever's coming up for it that can really flow. So the whole experience of even sensing and holding these tensions changes. It helps us kind of be a conduit for realities further unfolding or further emergence, uh, rather than just something that uh, gets stuck with something that can't get, get go anywhere, can't have an impact. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Looping back to some of the other main principles to kind of fill in the picture of what holacracy is, I know, you know, one thing that people often ask about is how do you separate yourself from your position so that you don't feel like if you, for instance, go on vacation or you leave that somehow the whole organization is going to go, you know, go under, you know, can lead to a lot of burnout and a sense of feeling like I need to secure my position and I have to make myself irreplaceable in a certain way. And I know there's some principles in holacracy, maybe you could get into them that are kind of a counter to that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is also really common in the entrepreneurial space and world where you see entrepreneurs and founders that are fused with their organization and there's no differentiation of their sense of self even. Sometimes there's kind of drawing their own self-identity, self-sense, self-esteem from the organization. Uh, and even those that avoid that 
there's just a natural fusion. Uh, and I do mean natural. It's uh, any new life comes into this world through a fusion with a parent. And the same, I think, is true with an organization. When an organization's born, there's a natural, healthy fusion with the individuals birthing it. Yet, just like a child's journey, there needs to be a, a differentiation. And if not, both parties are severely limited. So the process of, I think, developing an organization is one of differentiating from founders and the work of the organization. And then that broader macro pattern plays out with every individual working in an organization. Uh, we've all experienced those moments where, you know, we find ourselves really connected or attached to our roles. And so one of the main focuses in Holacracy is trying to really differentiate the roles from, from the souls, as we say, the, the roles from the people to make clear what is it the organization needs in order to express its purpose. So what is it the organization needs in terms of its structure, its activities, what authorities are needed? Uh, Holacracy is a tool for clarifying authority. So we don't have to come to big, long, painful consensus seeking discussions all the time. But so we know what are the roles, what authority do those roles have and need to have to unfold the purpose. Then separately, who am I? What are my talents, passions, purpose? And then how do we find a fit so we can integrate the people in the roles? But there is a differentiation and then a conscious integration instead of this just messy fusion where I am my job. Holacracy spells all of that out. It gets an organizational structure clarified that's separate from the people and then integrated with the people. And that has some pretty, I think, powerful effects on us. And going back to a meditation-like practice, it is continually holding up a mirror and pointing out that you are not all these things you identify with. Uh, you are not your roles. You're not your jobs. You're not the activities you do. Uh, you are none of these things. Uh, you are something else that is energizing all of them. And it's like there's a day-to-day -day reminder of that built into a practice that continually points out not you, not Vince, not Brian, but what are the roles we fill? What authorities do those roles have? Go fill those roles on behalf of a purpose, recognizing you are none of those things. You are something that's coming in and energizing all of those things. Mm -hmm. So that is built right into the, the structure and the meeting practices and, and all that as well. How do you find that lands for people that are more individualistic and more self-referencing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it can be both challenging and liberating. So there's often a, an awareness once somebody gets to a, a certain space in their own path, their own development, of all these, the depths of, of the interiority, the you know, interior spaces we bring and all that. And I think this is where a search for consensus uh, will often spring from. Once we have an awareness that everyone has this kind of unique perspective uh, and there's a depth of that, there's a natural draw to not want to stomp on uh, somebody else's unique perspective, uh, recognizing the value in different perspectives. And that can easily lead to what I call the tyranny of consensus, where in trying to honor and give voice to everyone and to our own unique perspectives as well, we actually end up obscuring the ability for anyone to really process tensions because we've got so much space where everybody's trying to just come to agreement and consensus around everything. So uh, one of the challenges uh, to Holacracy can be it cuts through that and it says, you know what, let's have an integrative process, in fact, a highly integrative process to define the autocratic authorities. So there's kind of a polarity or a paradox built in. There's a really integrative process to, to give everyone a perspective uh, and a voice, but specifically to focus on what are the roles needed and what authorities do those roles need to have for the purpose. It's all purpose-driven. 
And then from there, let's fill those roles and let's enact our authority with clarity that we don't need to come to consensus on everything uh, and where the limits or bounds of that authority are. And that can be really liberating. So a lot of folks that have been trapped in the tyranny of consensus that I work with often don't want to give up the value in that of multiple perspectives and giving people a kind of a, a space and at the same time are pained by the lack of ability to really process tensions, which ironically is crushing people. What I see holacracy doing is often integrating the best of both of those. It's giving everybody a really, truly sacred space to sense whatever they can and get it processed with an integrative process to get there. And it honors and integrates autocracy to say, okay, now that we're clear on what's needed for the organization, what, what are the structures and roles and activities that we need to engage in, let's figure out who's the best fit for which roles, and then let's go and engage in them without an expectation that we're going to come to consensus on every little decision and a process for addressing tensions that come up about it over time. So there's no one ever stuck left holding attention that can't be processed. So that reframes and shifts just so much of what we see in, in organizations today. And I think the thing that lets that work, and this is to the point of the individual, kind of an, an individual focus, holacracy is all driven by purpose. So if we're coming together as purely a community with no broader purpose other than to make everybody involved happy, <laughs> uh, you know, then holacracy is not for you. Uh, it's not a practice for that. A holacracy is a practice for an organization that is here to express a purpose and we look at the organization as a differentiated life form, almost, as a, as a liberated entity. Uh, when we say to liberate the soul of organization, we, we mean quite literally to liberate the organization as its own independent uh, entity, expressing its own path in the world, trying to find its own purpose and, and align with that and express it. Uh, in the same way that you or I might try to tune into a sense of what is my unique gift to contribute to this world and and then how can I best express it? Uh, I think often today our organizations get looked at as machines or property that is here to serve either just the shareholders uh, or even in our progressive companies, there's a looking at organizations as here to serve all of us. But would you look at a child that way, you know, and, and that's the shift for holacracy. It's much more like we actually look at a child. They're, they're not there to serve us. In fact, our job as a healthy parent is to get our own stuff out of the way to help the child find its path in life and express it, not to project, I want my kid to be a doctor because that makes me happy, but to get us out of the way. And that's not about dropping the relationship. In fact, it invites a more deep, intimate relationship with the child when we've gotten our stuff out of the way and we're helping the child find its path in life. And holacracy really does the same with the organization where it's really trying to liberate it, differentiate it, uh, help get us, the people, out of the way of it finding its own path in life and then integrate us back in uh, in a way that also honors our autonomy. In fact, it's not about subjugating ourselves to the organization in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it's about having more autonomy to show up fully and authentically in a, a role that serves something else's purpose as well. And that's a huge shift from most organizations today where we've got lots of politics, fear, drama, uh, where they're all organizing around either making money and serving the shareholders as an ultimate end, or even in the progressive companies where they're organized around all of us and all about the people, uh, that can get just as stuck. We're trying to take a real leap beyond that to look at what is this organization's role to fill in the furthering of evolution in the world and bringing something new to life? Uh, what does the world need this organization to be? What does it want to be in life? And really trying to help express or manifest that energy, that potential, uh, in a way that is more honoring of us as sensors of reality along the way.
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.